everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I had the real privilege of getting to talk to Lo Alamon. Lo is an artist, speaker, and minister. He works as director of community life at the Harvest Campus of the Woodlands United Methodist Church in Texas. He is also a husband, father, and son of the Most High God. Whether he's preaching, spitting poetry, or just chilling with his new best friends, Lo seeks to create moments to minister the love of Jesus in every space he enters. Today on the podcast, we talked about Lowe's new book, We Sang a Dirge, that released on December 3rd. This book is his first full-length work of poetry and is part lament of what is and part longing for what will be. It really is a powerful deep dive into his perspective on the events of and leading up to 2020. So if you haven't already, make sure you grab a copy of We Sang a Dirge. Lo in this podcast even reads one of his poems, 20, to us, and you won't want to miss that. So join the conversation and let's listen. So how have you guys been? How's the pandemic? How has pandemic life been for you guys? Um, it's been interesting. Um, I, so my wife is pregnant currently. Um, oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So we're about to have, thank you. We're about to have our second kid. Um, and that the biggest frustration, I guess, with the whole pandemic is it's like kind of, it's made the process of having a child kind of crazy. Um, so I can't go to appointments uh, like, like seriously. And then even when we have the baby, I'm able to be in the delivery room, but we can't have like a doula and my wife has to give birth with a mask on. So it's totally weird. Um, we also just moved like at the top of the pandemic, we moved in March. And so the transition in the middle of quarantine has just been really strange for us. Good things have been happening in it. We have built some community and, um, obviously we're having a kid. So we're excited about that. And so definitely been blessing in it. We think God's hand is on you know, a lot of things that we have our hands in. And so we, we're excited about that stuff. Um, yeah. But it, it's also been weird. It's, it's, it's yeah. been weird. It's a weird, it's a weird time. Like yeah. it's for me, I found it has both been hard and, you know, like you said, there's been some good things at the same time as well, but it's just, I feel like it's an, the pandemic is an app running in the background. So mm. like everything else I do, I'm kind of like, it's, it's just always ever present. They're yeah. making life, life a little more difficult. That's so. a really good analogy. That's a yeah. Really good yeah. Um, so I watched the wedding poem that oh, you, boy. yeah. Oh my gosh. It was beautiful. Hey, it's always cool when <laughs> folks say that. <laughs> so nice. well, well, it went viral. So, I mean, I like, I was just like, wow, you really set the bar for, oh. for guys everywhere. <laughs> well, cool, I guess um, it, it was, yeah. it was a special moment for us. We had no idea it was going to do that. Um, but it was super special. Yeah. How does it feel to how to have a moment that was that special and that intimate between you and your wife kind of become uh out there for the public? Um it kind of doesn't it, it it's not as significant now. When it first happened, it was kind of crazy. Like we were we didn't even know we didn't know it was gonna happen. We didn't pay for a videographer. There just happened to be a guy there with a camera because one of Erica's aunts uh was sick and so he just happened to be recording it. And when we, when we went on our honeymoon, we were kind of just hanging out and just chilling. We were in Puerto Rico and my mom kept calling and I was like, <laughs> Hey, we're trying to just hang out here and do the whole honeymoon thing. 
And she was like, you have to get on Facebook right now. Your video is going viral. And I'm like, mom, you don't even know what viral is. Uh, but I, I ended up checking to see, you know, what she was talking about. And I think at the time it had like 2 million views and oh 17 million over Facebook and YouTube and all this crazy stuff and like celebrities re- reposting it. And it's like, what in the world is happening? Um, yeah. So it was like a lot of shock at the, on the front end of it. About a few months passed by and you realize that the whole quote unquote going viral thing is not as big of a deal as it out to be. Like, um, it was cool that you know we we had prayed and asked God. You know, we want our wedding to be just helpful and to be worshipful and to uh, I don't know, give a different perspective on you know what dating or being married could look like. And He kind of did that, and that was really cool. And so, yeah, we were excited about it, and it was really fun. But um, the whole celebrity uh, viralness, like, oh, that's that's kind of superficial. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So how did you and your wife meet? We actually met in seventh grade. Um, no way. Yeah, so I, I moved to Mississippi. Um, seventh grade, she had moved to Mississippi. Um, I want to say when she was like two months old or something like that. But neither of us were born in the South. I was born in California. She was born in Jersey. And we moved there uh, when we were pretty young. And then went to the same school. Seventh grade, she left. I think her house had, had like a house fire. Um, mm-hmm. So she'd moved away. And then she came back in high school and um, we started dating then and kind of dated through college off and on. And um, by the time I was, I had enough money to get married. I was like, I'm going to go ahead and lock this down before she realized <laughs> she could do better. And yeah, uh, it's, been, it's been awesome since. Yeah. When did you guys get married? We got married in uh, December of 2015. So we're coming up on five years. In wow. Wow. That's a big milestone. It is. It kind of. It kind of felt like it went fast, but it also felt like so much life was in those four, five years. It seemed longer than that for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you because my husband and I got married in 2017, so nice. we're like three and a half years right now, and it feels long. But also, I'm like, I don't feel like I've ever been doing life any other way. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you, you said you guys moved at the beginning of, or at the beginning of March. So what are you guys doing now? So my, my, while we were moving or while we were still in San Antonio, we'd moved to Texas in 2017. Um, my wife was doing grad school and she actually finished up in May of this year. So she's, she was doing grad school during the move, which was kind of crazy. Wow. Um, and moving in at the start of the pandemic, it was not crazy enough. And, and being pregnant. It was, it was a whole yeah. thing. It was a whole thing. Um, so she is working in, in her degree. She's the health and wellness educator for the Montgomery County Food Bank. And then I was working on staff at a church doing college ministry. And when we came out here, um, I started working for Harvest um, at the Woodlands UMC as the uh, community life minister. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So what does that mean? Um, what do you do as a community life minister? Yeah, basically try to make our worshiping community uh, feel more like a discipling community. And so we. Um, we have home groups, which is like our small group ministry. And so I get to coordinate that and train our leaders and write curriculum um, for our home group ministry. I also run our podcast um, to basically have conversations about how we do the stuff in the sermon in our actual community, in our actual day-to-day lives. Um, and then I also get to preach um, pretty consistently, which is super fun for me. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then they have, they have this like ambiguity in the job description to where it's always like, whatever else we throw on your plate as well. So there's <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, as, 
other task as assigned. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So, but in addition to all of that, you're also a spoken word poet. And I believe I'm right. You're publishing your first book of poems Uh, on December 3rd. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It's really cool and weird at the same time, but it's it's cool. Yeah. So I want to talk about We Sang a Dirge. Mm -hmm. Um, You you wrote all of it in 2020. Is that right? Uh, The bulk of it. Yeah. There's a handful of poems in there. Uh, that I had kind of had, and I may I kind of tweaked for this project, but the bulk of it, I would say about eighty percent of it, was all written during this that, this time. That is, I feel like that's an amazing time frame. How did these pieces come together? Well, so during the, I mean, we moved right at the top of the pandemic, and that was in March. Uh, we didn't know this at the time, but Ahmaud Aubrey was killed uh, in February, February twenty third. Mm-hmm. Um, weeks after Breonna Taylor and then weeks after or months after it was George Floyd. And so mm-hmm. there was a weird climate of just, just unrest, um, and racial tension that kind of spurred up, had been there for a while, but had spurred up during the pandemic because I think everybody was in front of their phones. You kind of couldn't get away from some of the video footage and it was on everybody's heart and everybody's minds. The strange part about that is we had just moved out of our community. And so I'm in a new community. Uh, in a predominantly, predominantly white community. And so I didn't really know the context I was in. And if I could be honest and vulnerable about some of the things I was carrying as a black person, receiving um, all of this news and then respond, seeing the responses of other people, particularly the evangelical church, um, whether they were in agreement or in apathy. And so I didn't, I didn't feel like my church was the safest place to mm-hmm. uh to wear all of the things I was feeling. Not that my church is racist at all. Um, I, it was just new. I didn't know who they were. Yeah. Um, and so I, 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 I practice journaling and uh, writing poetry just between me and God as a way of just meeting with him. And writing during that time was just super cathartic and super just helpful um, to get all of my emotions out and to just be present with the Lord in it. And in doing so, um, I found out I wrote a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I ended up sharing one of the poems and uh, a good friend of mine, J.D. Walt, had reached out and was like, hey, do you, you wouldn't happen to have more poems like that. And I was like, dude, you have no idea. It's all I've been <laughs> writing lately. And so, yeah, we just sat down and had a conversation about how potentially this could be a helpful thing for some people. And just from there, taking all the stuff I had been writing and then being more intentional about um, how, how do we express and wrestle with all of these things from a biblical hope lens. Um mm-hmm. It, it was super helpful for me in the journey and, I, and my prayer is that it's helpful for other people. And so that's yeah. kind of what came about. Yeah, for sure. So We Sang a Dirge, like I've said, it comes out December 3rd and it's a book of poems centered on um, the events that you've just talked talked about, events in 2020, the racial unrest, the protests, the politics, the pandemic and police brutality. Mm-hmm. So why did you decide to use poetry as your vehicle to share your perspective? Yeah, well, I, th- I think as a poet, um, I, I I tend to live in several worlds. Uh, one of those worlds is this kind of artsy, uh, creative space that for me, I'm able to receive information, not so much from the lens of argument or from the lens of, um, you know, debate. It's, it's simply expression. It's simply um, giving voice to what's being experienced and felt. Uh, I've noticed that when I bring that context to uh, the church world or even some of these kind of issues that have been politicized, there tends to be much more hostility towards it. And I notice that a lot of people aren't really comfortable having the conversation about race and um, 
the issues that we're currently seeing because it always feels like we tr- are trying to win an argument and wield the facts against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been awesome for me, and I think this is some God intentionally does in scripture is because there's art and poetry all throughout scripture, um, yeah. is that God is inviting us to engage our imaginations and our emotions, not just our opinions, right? And so right. that experience of lament and pain, it, I don't really have a bunch of facts as to how I feel, what I feel in the moment. Now we can study history, we can read a lot, we can understand more information about the context that we live in, uh, what creates these systems. But I think all that is what you do after you're on board for the journey uh, of empathizing and of uh, leaning into compassion. If you're not in that place yet, or if you're so bogged down in that place that you forget to empathize with your brother and sister, if, if it becomes so much the narrative of us versus them that you forget to see people as a neighbor, um, mm-hmm. I think we lose something about the kingdom of God um, that, that, that demands that we see each other as uh, one in the body of Christ. And so what I wanted to do was express how the body was hurting. Um, I felt like poetry was the best way to do that. I think I, I, I talk a lot for a living. Um, I use a bunch of words. And, um, <laughs> I just felt like I've done a good enough job, or at least I'm tired of doing the job of expressing uh, more facts and opinions about things, as opposed to inviting people to feel uh, what I think the black community is feeling. Uh, I was having a conversation with a brother of mine uh, who's a black guy, and I shared one of the poems with him, and he was like, man, that's something that I felt too, and just didn't always have words for. And so a part of it is, you know, I want my white brothers and sisters or anybody who is not within this context to empathize and to have some understanding at the same time. Uh, when Jesus says we sang a dirge, he's using a parable uh, in Matthew to talk about what the kingdom of God is like. And some of the poems are this invitation to lament, but other other poems in the, the parable that Jesus gives is it's children singing a happy song as well and inviting us to dance. And so I think I want to empathize with my brothers and sisters who are in um, a marginalized community uh, to remind us that, yeah, things are difficult and, and there's, there are real frustrations and I don't want to pacify that, but I do want to invite us to see hope. Um, and the hope of the gospel is that God is for us. He, and if he's for us, then who can be against? And so, yeah, I think that for me, poetry was just kind of like something because I love to do it and I write it anyway. Uh, it seemed like a natural vehicle to uh, just help people have some conversation and really wrestle with some of this stuff um, in a place of empathy. Yeah, for sure. I know listening to your work um, on YouTube and stuff like that, I heard truth of situations and truth of the gospel in ways that I hadn't experienced before. Um, mm-hmm. And it really helped me understand better and evoked emotions in me that I didn't realize like were there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I would read things or because I read your book, um, Kaylin was kind enough to send me a preview of your book. Oh, cool. I read that and I was like, wow, like this is, this is really moving and helps me understand things that I have no way to understand on my own, you know? Mm. And so how do you see the intersection of art and faith? I think it's necessary. I think that there's, um, there's been such a, I, I, I hate to critique our culture a lot, but by and large, our worship music is going to consist of the same four chords. It's kind, <laughs> kind of a thing we do. Um, by and large, when we, when we think about, uh, art or creativity, it's typically as an accompaniment to Bible study. Um, uh-huh. As post-enlightenment, we care a lot about understanding um, and, and having intellect. And I think all that's perfect. I think God moves within our reason. But I also feel like there's been a bit of a, a, a way that there's, uh, we've kind of atrophied our appreciation for beauty and kind of atrophied our appreciation for um, storytelling, which is a big part of Jesus' ministry. Like he told a lot yeah. of parables 
which are just extended metaphors. It's, it's like, it's poetic um, because he wants us to connect our hearts to deeper truths. And we have a bit of a, a, a hindrance in our culture to where we think that truth equals facts. And I don't think it's always the case. I think for Jesus, um, facts point to truth um, and, and facts can assist in helping us see a truth. Um, but the reality is that, that Jesus says that he's the truth, you know? Yeah. And I think that for me, uh, there's a there's a huge need within the church uh, for more artists and more creatives to help us see parts of God that are only seen through that lens. Again, a third of a Bible is poetry, which means that God recognizes that this literary art is how he wants to reveal himself, right? And so mm-hmm. if, if he chooses to reveal himself and he is the word um, and the way he chooses to reveal himself is through art, it stands to reason that he wants to communicate to us beyond just what, uh, how we rationale, how we use our rationale. Uh, but he wants to communicate to our emotions too. Um, yeah. And so I think, yeah, for, there's, there's a way in which I think God has gifted a lot of us um, in this kind of creative realm, but the church hasn't always had space for it. And it's a sad thing. And, and hopefully something that we can kind of work towards uh, just creating space for more art and more creativity. Because I think that's necessary, especially with this new generation of people who are so uh, visually attuned and are really deeply, inv- a whole generation that's deeply invested in art. Um, we as the church kind of have to be able to, to speak our gospel, uh, same truth, same gospel, same word, uh, in, a, in a way in which our, our culture can currently experience it. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I also noticed about your work is your love for Jesus is super obvious and it seems super fresh and active and alive. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you met Jesus and then yeah. how you how you keep your faith active and alive, like in a way that's so real that in what you write, like it's just there. Yeah, well, I met Jesus as a scrub. I was totally uh, <laughs> I was, I was a mess. And I think the way my faith stays active is that there are some areas that I'm still just a huge mess. <laughs> I, still need them. Um, I would say we're all messes. It's just, I think, realizing it and acknowledging it and being like, okay, I'm bringing that part of me to Jesus. Preach that, fam. Come on. <laughs> That's it. So, so I was I was kind of like most folks in the South is raised in the church. Um, and it wasn't that people like explain Jesus well at the time. Not to me anyway. It was just like, this is what we do. Um, every Monday we have choir practice. Every Wednesday we have midweek devotion. Uh, every Thursday we have, if we're not in revival, we have uh, drill team practice. And then on Sunday we're in church probably three times a day. Like it's just what you do. And at some point in time, I was just like, I don't love this. Um, this is like more ritualistic than I necessarily care for. And then the church that I came from, it was a lot of hypocrisy. Um, mm. which wasn't always fun to see. And so, yeah, um, growing up in that context, the moment I was not uh, forced to go and I went to college, I didn't go. I <laughs> uh, was kind of a typical, you know, college kid. Like, I'm going to go and do my own thing now. And yeah, I, I totally screwed up my first year of school and um, just, just was really empty and, and was hurting and had not dealt with a lot of trauma within my own life and hadn't dealt with a lot of, uh, pain and just anger that I was holding on to. And so while I'm in summer school, there's not a lot of folks on campus and I'm just kind of there by myself, uh, except for there's a handful of people who are still on campus that I wanted a community and wanted to hang out with them. And so I did life with them and they just happened to be a bunch of artists. Um, and they just happened to be followers of Jesus. And I started doing life with this, this little community that was, I'm so thankful for now. Uh, mm-hmm. and though I didn't have language for it back then. Um, I think it was provenient grace that God putting people in my path um, 
and giving me windows into his heart and windows into what biblical community can look like and and then doing life with brothers and sisters. That was just really cool. So yeah. um, start doing life with some people that are really dope. And uh, I'm writing in this context. I'm being encouraged and lifted up in this context. I'm learning to pray in this context. I feel like God speaks to me in a weird, charismatic kind of way. Not to weird you out, but it was a thing for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like I, I, there was no denying that Christ was who he said he was and that the word he was saying to me is I'm, I'm loved by him. That God's calling me his son which is like, what the heck? Um, that was beautiful. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I instantly felt a need to is to share this. And so uh, within the church that I grew up in, there was not a space to say, oh, be an artist. Um, also, Christian rap was super cheesy at the time. I wasn't really interested <laughs> in that. Um, yep. So instead, I was like, well, I'll, I'll do the whole preaching thing. And so I started doing ministry in that context. And uh, I would share poems whenever I had a chance to. And it was really cool. And I eventually got uh, offered an internship at a church in Mississippi, in Tupelo, actually. And um, they just brought me on and allowed me to to do life with them and see a different way of doing ministry. And um, they poured into me and uh, discipled me and, yeah, uh, gave me opportunities that I was so not qualified for. Um, <laughs> but at the, they, they let me mess up and let me figure it out. And I am forever grateful for those people. And so yeah. doing life with that church and having opportunities with that church and, and different churches and it kind of just turned into being like a, a thing, like a vocational thing, like, holy cow, I get like money yeah. for it. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, it was, a, it was a really cool season, especially when we got married. Uh, my wife was in grad school again. So um, we were just able to kind of travel around and experience different camps and churches and uh, conferences. And it's just like, whoa, uh, the kingdom of God is way bigger than my small 30 member congregation back in my hometown. Yeah, for sure. Seeing how God was inviting us to be a part of a really cool story um, that I, again, don't feel qualified for. I think it keeps me in a position of like, man, if, if God, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's a, there's been awesome moments of growth. um, But those moments of growth have not uh, eradicated the need for grace. um, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So was college the first time that you started writing? No, nah, it's not fair to say. I think I okay. the first time I wrote, I want to say I was in the third grade or fourth grade. There was like a poetry competition in school and learning about oh, it. Wow. Um, I did it. It was probably a terrible poem. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I wrote then, and around that same time is when Eight Mile came out. I don't know if you remember Eight Mile with uh, Eminem and oh no, <laughs> oh man, it, it, it had a, a terrible impact on me. Don't watch it. It's a terrible movie. It was good. <laughs> Um, so I watched Eight Mile and I instantly wanted to be a rapper like any other kid. Um, then I go to middle school and there's like rap battles in our school. And so I would write like raps and um, I didn't know this at the time, but it's it's poetry. Um, it's 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 a intentional form where you are writing and using metaphor and using uh, simile and using um uh, personification and turn of phrase and punchlines to try to help connect the crowd to your meaning and to your point. And I didn't realize that, that was how formative that was at the time, but it was super formative. Um, yeah. Also, I was pretty hood. And so I was like, yeah, I'm building up this, um, this muscle um, to be able to connect with audiences. So, yeah, I mean, that was a thing way, way back in the way back. And I think God just kind of repurposed and redeemed it to where I was no longer talking about things that weren't healthy or good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, he has a way of doing that for sure. Kind of at it. It's kind of his thing. 
Yeah, it really is. And and we sang a dirge in the forward of it, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. You write that after George Floyd was killed, that you had a hard time keeping your phone charged because of all the top of the calls and texts that you were getting as you were talking to the people who were calling you. um, What did you hope to share with people through the crisis? Yeah, a couple of things. I think for, for most folks in the black community, um, I say most folks, I I almost want to say all, um, these aren't new conversations. Um, And, and the, 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 the beauty of this year is that there are more folks who are willing to have these conversations and more folks who are willing to wrestle with it. The reality of it is, though, is that this is not a new phenomenon, um, that there has been a weird way in which Black people have been policed in this country since its inception. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a way in which the church has not always known how to find itself on the right side of those conversations. It's been a thing for a mm-hmm. while. Um, and there has been hope and there has been progress and there has been change. Um, but again, that the the signs of growth don't eradicate the need for grace. It's been an ongoing thing, not just within our, our own personal lives, but I think it's true of the church. That just because we've grown in an area doesn't mean we don't need God to continue growing us and shaping us. Yeah. And so I think for me, the main thing I wanted to communicate with people is that I am so thankful. Uh, I'm so thankful that we are willing to wrestle with this in any context, but the way in which we wrestle is important. Um, a lot of, and this is a thing I think for a lot of black people, I found out that I was the only black friend for a lot of white folks, um, they they kept reaching out to me and, uh, as opposed to like, it just seemed like I was the only person representing this kind of issue within our circles. And the conversation was so typically, I'm sorry for you as opposed to I'm grieving, uh, because this is a problem within us. Uh, it seemed like the narrative was these are black problems and black issues as opposed oh, yeah. to these are our problems and our issues. And even that language, I think, is kind of uh, telling of where our hearts typically are when it comes to some of these narratives. Um, that language of like black church and white church or uh, black issues or white issues totally goes against Jesus's narrative of loving your neighbor as yourself, you know, um, mm-hmm. for neighbors. And the problems in my community are also in your community. Um, it's not my problem. It's our problem, you know? And so yeah. I think a lot of the, the, the heart behind my message was um, how do we see George Floyd as a brother uh, before we see him as uh, a savior of any sort, or we mm-hmm. see him as a martyr of any sort, or we see him as uh, a villain or, or some of that weird narrative of he had it coming, like all that weird stuff that was happening in the political realm. Um, people trying to use a, a black person's death to validate their points, as opposed to saying, if this is our brother, then we have to first start by just grieving that the dude's dead. Um, yeah, and the definitely. tragedy of like the image of God being robbed and stripped of life and dignity, like that, that's worth grieving. Um, and so people are rushing to arguments before having that moment to grieve or people rushing to um, pacify pain as opposed to lamenting with people. My hope was helping people see these issues, not just his, but all of these issues as mm-hmm. if we value the image of God, we value the, the essence of life and the spirit of rock of God in our, in our lives. If we value that, um, then we should value it when it's alive and breathing and celebrate that. And when it's not, that's when we mourn. That's when we lament. Um, that's, that, that's the children crying out in the marketplace, singing this sad song. What is your response to that? It should be grief before it's argument. So my, most, most of my conversations were trying to humanize the issue uh, and then point to, to Christ as a hope and Christ as an answer because everything else tends to fall short of humanity. Yeah. How has your perspective changed since 
um, we first heard about these events and you wrote the wrote We Sang a Dirge until now. Uh, I think the biggest change for me has, has kind of shifted from what I expect outcomes to be. I think my motivation is still the same. I still hope that people okay. would, you know, see uh, the image of God in people, that they would value uh, human life. But I think when I started having conversations with folks, I, I got so much farther just sitting down with people and being across from a table, or even if because of COVID, being on Zoom with someone. Like as long as we can be face to face and talk about stuff, then I think we can go far. We can get we can get way further in a conversation between two people as opposed to in the comment sections on Facebook or Twitter. Yes, definitely. You know. Yeah. Um, and so when I wrote the book, I was thinking, oh, this will be great. I'll, I'll write a book, um, and and I'll just try to solve all the problems through this this poetic lens. And what I was in, what I was convicted by, as well as encouraged by, is that if progress and growth and empathy happens when we're at, 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 at a table from across from a table from one another, then the book's goal should not be to answer all the problems. The book's goal should be to get people in front of each other. And so yeah. my, my expectations for outcome is I don't think I'm going to write away all the problems in a heart. Uh, my hope would be that I grow, I grow empathy within people on both sides mm-hmm. of an argument and that as that empathy happens, it becomes a bridge that leads us to a place of having conversation and dialogue and healthy, healthy disagreement, if it's that. Um, but also seeing where oneness and unity can happen um, through, through the grace of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. In many of your poems, you write candidly about the church's complicity and systemic racism mm. and bodies that are too homogenous in their worship. And we even talked about this just a little bit already in our conversation. What do you think the church's role is in combating this issue and how can we as Christians move forward? Yeah, I think we all uh, have some cues that we get from scripture. Um, And I I think a lot of those cues that we take, if they're taken in their context, make a lot of sense and they're perfect. Um, But if we take them out of their context and we kind of put our agenda on top of them, they're totally broken. Uh, So I heard a lot of folks kind of lean into Galatians where Paul talks about there's no more slave or free, there's no Jew or Gentile, no male or female. Um, and a lot of folks have used that to say, well, the church's role should be to turn a blind eye to all of the issues and just look at all of us as one race, one ethnicity, um, everything else is is problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you read Paul, you can, you find out that he actually, he, he thinks there's a very distinct role between male and female. Um, mm-hmm. In some ways, more than some of us do. Um, he thinks that there is a difference between Jew and Gentile. You read Romans and he talks about, you know, how we, we've had, or the Jewish people had a truth that they already held on to. And so he's, he's not saying that, that, that ethnicity isn't a thing or that sexuality and gender is not a thing. What he's saying is not a call for sameness, but a call for oneness, that we are mm. one in Christ. And I think the church has often tried to make their a, a need for sameness um, with our homogenous worship. If you're black, you worship in a black church. If you're Hispanic, in a Hispanic church. If you're in white, you're in a white church. Or if we go and minister and evangelize, we start to try to bring parts of our culture in to change the culture of the people, as opposed to seeing how God can redeem and use those cultures. And so I think there's a huge need for the, the church to respond to this call for oneness, not sameness. Oneness looks like if you're grieving, I grieve with you. We don't even have to have the same problems. We don't even have to have the same opinions about those problems or, or the same opinions about the solutions. But if we're one, then your burdens are my burdens. And we bear one another's burdens like Galatians 6, 2, right? Like we're, I'm grieving yeah. with you. Um, the same thing is true about what we celebrate. I think that there is a way in which uh, we have characterized uh, black worship and white worship and all that weirdness. 
And the idea behind our praise being divided is so foreign to the way of Jesus. Um, the way of Jesus invites all of us uh, to come to him. Anybody who's broken and weary qualifies for rest. That's kind of Jesus' yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so any of us who are broken and weary, we qualify for grace. We qualify for worship. And, and, and what he invites us to is to bring that worship to him who is worthy of it. And so if, I, if, if my appreciation and my gratitude, my thankfulness lead me to the heart of the Father and he's leading your heart in the same place, then eventually we should cross paths, you know? Um, yeah. My, my, my hope is that the church leans into this idea of oneness. Um, I think the idea of oneness over sameness, it, it looks more like the kingdom of God. Um, I think it's messy. Uh, I, I think yeah, it's hard. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to make for some really uncomfortable conversations and it's going to show us that we've probably valued things that are not of value to God, or at least not in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to call for us to lay down some golden calves. Uh, but I think it leads somewhere that's healthier. Um, it leads towards a united body in Christ, um, which I think is yeah. what, what, what we are all longing for. Yeah, for sure. How can we start having or continue to have, because I'm hoping people are already doing this, how can we continue to have these conversations? What what should they look like? How can we How can we do this well? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite thing about being an artist is I get to say I don't know a lot. Um, yeah, and, and and to be okay with it because I think I think it's going to look different for different people. Uh, it's going to look different for different contexts. I think it's going to look different for different issues, and and that's okay. So I don't have a, a cookie cutter answer to say. Oh, it has to look like this. If you are a white person, you've probably heard uh, your posture should be just to listen during this time. And mm-hmm. in some ways, I appreciate that and respect that idea. But I think that creates a bit of a dynamic to where all the answers are supposed to come from those who are in the struggling communities. And oh. I think it's a bit unfair. I think that there, I, maybe listening is helpful, but that's not what a conversation is. It involves listening and talking, giving and taking. And so I don't know what that looks like for you as an individual. Uh, what I do know is that's the work of Jesus. Like the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says in John 14, the Spirit is going to lead you and guide you into all truth. And so it's not going to be the work of study. It's not going to be the work of um, leadership. It's not going to be the work of any of that stuff. It's going to be the work of the Spirit guiding us and leading us into places of truth. Um, that looks different for different folks. Um, that looks harder uh, and that yeah. looks more challenging and it's more messy and it's, and, and, and it's not as, it's, there's no curriculum for it, which we like curriculum. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm kind of like, tell me how I should do something and I will, I will do my best to go do that. Yeah. But I, I wish it was that simple, um, <laughs> yeah. but it's not, here's what's really crazy. So we, we, we have, um, uh, my, my two year old almost, and then we have a boy on the way and, and I'm blown away by how quickly they hand you a human life with no instruction, like no yeah. manual. <laughs> here's a human go with it. And I have, I have to like go through more training to have a car. I have to go through more training uh, to have a license. And yet I'm, I'm entrusted with a human life and I'm expected to raise it. And there's no one way to do it. And there's no manual to do it. Um, I think Pinterest helps with that <laughs> you get some cool ideas, but there's no manual. And I think that the things like that, like actually doing life, they're harder, they're messier. And there is no, there is no curriculum for it, but it, it's a journey. And yeah. I think I think this is also a journey. I think it's an invitation to do life with people, to love neighbors well. And there is no format, um, but there's a, there's a path. And according to Jesus, it's a narrow one. Um, and so I think he invites us. I think he calls. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for ind- individual people, but just wrestling is a starting point. 
just yeah. lamenting, just grieving, just mourning with each other, that's the starting point. Uh, and if yeah. we can't do that, then ev- every one of our efforts is going to go off somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Um, so your book invites us to, as you were saying, lament, to to empathize with others and to kind of maybe feel and see some of their experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and poets are sometimes referred to as prophets. Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel this way about your work and your writing? I think so. I think that, um, so on some nerdy stuff, I think of uh, 1 Samuel 9, 9, where uh, it, it talks about how they're looking for, you know, the prophet of a day and they went to go find the seers because the, the prophets of a day were called seers. Um, people who saw the world from a different vantage point. I think that's all poetry and art is. It's just seeing the same thing through a different lens. And what mm. I hope to do with my art and, and, and my preaching or just my life is to help people see Jesus more clearly, um, and help to see his love uh, all around them. There's, there's a line in one of my poems that says, uh, all around me are your gifts and all around them are your fingerprints. Like wanting to be able to see my life as blessed as it actually is, and also to see that all the good and perfect gifts in my life come from Him. That that that's a, that that's a hard issue, but it's also how we see things. And so, I, my hope is that I can help to create a bit of a new perspective on some of these issues to not make them as political as I think our culture wants to make them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really care if you. Uh, like the electric slide. I don't really care if you like two-stepping or country music, like whatever your preference <laughs> is, that, that, that part's on you. Um, my, my hope is that we can see these as discipleship issues. How do I value the image of God? How do I love my neighbor as myself? How do I love God with all my heart, mind, and strength? And from the overflow of that love, that's what I carry to my brother and sister. Like those are discipleship conversations. The yeah. fact that race has been uh, created which is a thing we don't often think about, but there's ethnicity all over scripture. There's no such thing as race in scripture. Um, mm-hmm. And so the idea that racial racial tensions have been created to distract us from loving our neighbors, that's what makes it a discipleship issue. Uh, it's not it's not an issue because it's ugly. There's a lot of ugly things in the world. The discipleship piece of it is it's blocking me from connecting my heart to the Father and loving my neighbor as myself. That's what I care about us getting on board for. And so if I can help people see that, um, then... I, I, I will gladly wear the badge of it being prophetic. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you're like telling us about something, but calling us to a different way of being too. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, but you're also inviting us into lament and grieving. Um, why do you think that lament, the biblical definition? Well, first of all, I guess we should, I was starting to talk about the biblical definition of lament. What is the biblical definition of lament and then how can we why is that important yeah so lament i think is often given a bad rep we think we think <laughs> lament is like whining <laughs> yes yes that's not what it is um in, in fact there's there's a there's a a, a entire uh, movement of people and i'm not going to name them or make this like they're wrong or bad but there's a kind of name it and claim it version of the gospel to where we can only speak positive good things Mm-hmm. Um, and if you speak negative things, it somehow betrays your faith in God. When in actuality, uh, God tells us to cast our, our cares to him because he deeply cares for us. He even says, Matthew chapter five, verse four, blessed are those that mourn because they shall receive comfort. There's, there's comfort from the father when we give him our grief. He's not just asking us to like fake it till we make it, name it and claim it, act like everything is good when it's not. But the invitation from the father is to give him our brokenness to mm-hmm. give from all the places where we're hurting. And so biblical lament is, it's not whining. A biblical lament is this mourning that has confidence and comfort. 
It's, it's giving God our confession of brokenness with the hope that he has an expectation to do something different about the circumstances that we're in. Uh, biblical amen is not housed in this idea that God has gone astray, but it's always rooted in the fact that we have gotten off the mark and that mm-hmm. it's only God that's going to bring us back. And so the idea of biblical amen is, as you've been seeing within our culture right now, there's been so many campaigns to go and vote. Like there's been such a call to go out and, and be involved mm-hmm. and active in creating a solution. Well, biblical amen is that. It's, it's asking God for a solution, but it's not doing, it's not doing it saying, hey God, we're going to cast in our chips and you're going to do for us what, we're, what you're supposed to do. We're lamenting that we have gone astray. We have made a mistake and we are trusting that you are the one that can fix it. Uh, mm-hmm. How long, Lord, is, is a phrase that's repeated all throughout scripture. It's, yes. gr- it's grieving saying, Lord, th- this, this kingdom right here, it's not the kingdom that you promised. Uh, this condition, this world that we find ourselves in, it's not the world that you want. And we confess that we're the ones that have gone astray with it. And so we ask, Lord, when will your, when your, your promise come and be made evident in our lives? And that hope is actually worshipful, that we trust that God is good enough to bring things back in order, that we trust that he is the only solution. It's confession, it's hurting, it's painful, but it's also a form of worship, placing our hope in its right place. Yeah, definitely. What can the Black community teach us about lament? Well, um, <laughs> I think I think there has been there has been some weird ways in which Scripture has kind of been taken advantage of um, and abused. Um, okay. I think of slave owners who would yes. uh, intentionally misquote scripture or leave out certain parts of the text or use it to justify their agenda. And what they would do is they would read themselves into the text in a position that they were not actually in. Um, somehow. It's a dangerous it, thing to do. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, but somehow the, the white brother and sister uh, way back in the gap uh, found themselves as the person of Israel. Uh, who God was making all these promises to. And that resulted in manifest destiny and, oh, this person should be my uh, my slave and the weird, the curse of Ham, all that weird language that has absolutely nothing to do with their context. It was reading themselves in a, in, a, in, a, in a poor way of seeing themselves in scripture. What I think the black church has long known how to do is how to properly find yourself in the story. That when you mm. are the oppressed and the marginalized, you empathize and you, and you relate to the, the stories of the oppressed and the marginalized in scripture. And so God's promise of deliverance is not a promise of, oh, you want the, all, everything's going to go your way. His promise of deliverance is if you are oppressed, you have hope because your God has not abandoned you. I think that that mm-hmm. idea of feeling the tension of the day and reading yourself in the biblical passages the way you're supposed to be is a practice that the, the Black Church has done for a long time. Um, seeing ourselves in the story and then reacting in a proper proper way. And so I think what all of us can kind of learn uh, from the Black experience is how to endure with a proper perspective, that if God Mm. was faithful to deliver his people before, he will be faithful to deliver his people again. That Mm. is a hope that we can point to and cling to because he's done it before with the children of Israel. He's done it before within the Black church uh, and the Black community. And I believe he'll do it now, that we as a people, if we are called by his name and humble ourselves and seek his face, we pray he'll hear from heaven, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll yeah. hear our land. That's, that's a promise that was true for his people. And so the black church began to sing that and to praise that and celebrate around that. And our culture being built around all of our music reflected it. Um, our, our, our ways of gathering reflected it. Uh, the whole idea of we shall overcome someday was, was a chant in the black community that was stemmed from the gospels. 
And so I think what we learn is uh, biblical hope and endurance comes from believing that God was faithful to do it before and he can do it again. Um, I think we all can learn from that. In the moments we feel personal and individual despair, uh, when our personal lives are are falling apart, um, or when as a collective, as a community, uh, we're experiencing brokenness or uh, we're disoriented, uh, we can know that God's been faithful uh, and he will continue to be faithful. Yeah, I love uh, your words about how lament leads us to hope or can lead us to hope. And it kind of, it leads us right into the next question I was going to ask you about your poem, 20. So before we talk about that, I was hoping that maybe you could um, read that for us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, awesome. All right. So a little context. Uh, when I wrote this poem, um, I was really hoping that there'd be like a vaccine sometime soon. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, like, yeah, let's let, let's so let's let's sit in the poem um, knowing that, you know, eventually things will get better. I recognize that through the years. So you talk about how my perspective has changed. My hope was that, you know, I'd be, we'd be uncomfortable, inconvenienced, but then things will be better uh, by the end of the summer. We actually our church was planning on going back to in-person worship uh, in mid-July. And that just did not happen. Yeah. Um, and so I am I am so thankful for this poem. I love this poem, but this poem is challenging me in a lot of ways. Um, because even as I even as I wrote it, I had an expectation for what God was gonna do. And the poem has been gracious enough and uh was written in a way that it still matters now. So even even after the year of 2020, I think there's still a hope that can be found in this poem. Um yes. hopefully the things in this poem won't be applicable in 2021, but we'll see. I yeah, I really hope not. I really just want things to change and return to some more normal life. Yeah, friend. Yeah, friend. I'm yeah, hoping that I don't sure. write a poem called This is 2021. Um, yeah. All right, here we go. What a year. What a collection of weeks we've had to wade through. What day is it anymore? I admit I've lost track. Too busy keeping count of all the loved ones that I have not seen. They're here, but they're not. Distance only makes the heart grow colder. To be sheltered in our places, surrounded by isolation, we've never seen a disease wreak havoc in so many different ways. Quarantine threatens to take what the virus can't reach. We're here, but we're not. Been wearing hand-me-down smiles since last year. 2020 been generous with burdens. I don't know how much more I can take. Depression is a hungry beast roaming freely. Hard to keep convincing it that I am not a snack. Hard to keep convincing this country that our skin is human. That my blood owes nothing to the ground. We'll water no seeds. Still we watch. Our lives spill onto a land but don't know how to call us miracles. Still watching our kin slain. Still young. With not enough trips around the sun to learn the nuance of seasons, we watch them turn to lifeless droughts, dust of lungs, scorning the inhale that never came. They claim they can't breathe. We're here, but where are we? Is this the world we've known? Is there a normal that we can go back to? A place where peace still flows. Can it douse the fire of rage? What hope can damp up the eyes and keep these tears from falling? Perhaps not. Perhaps there's no normal for us to return to, but we can build one. Our desire for change firm as bricks. Our longing for community, the mortar. We'll see graves turn to gardens, distance turn to runways. I miss you turn into glad. Your backs will call this anguish the flame that it is. We'll use it to set anything that tries to divide us ablaze. We'll brand ourselves in love. Hatred will not fuel this fire. Night will come, but darkness will not claim our mourning. Pain won't claim this year. 
2020 will be remembered, but we'll decide what it's remembered for. They'll remember that we were here, that we didn't fall apart, but we stood together in unity. They'll remember that we were here, that we wouldn't be silenced, but our voices became a catalyst for change. They'll remember that we were here. We were here. We were here. And we brought a future with us. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us, Lo. Thanks, friend. Yeah. I that I mean, obviously it's many people's one of the ones that they really like. As I read through your work, that was one that especially resonated with me as well. And just I love the the beauty of the words of lament and sadness and hope mm-hmm. and looking for the promise of joy. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks, friend. I really, I, yeah. I really loved writing the poem. I think for me, there's so in poetry, there's something called the Volta. It's where the poem turns. And uh-huh. uh, there were so many Voltas that I wanted. I, I, I wanted the turn <laughs> to be, uh, yeah, but it's all going to be good. Um, we won't have to worry about this anymore. And I don't think that was the hope that God was giving me. The hope that he was giving me was, uh, this year is going to be a thing. Um, no matter what spin is put on it, everyone's going to remember 2020. Um, yep. But the hope is that through Jesus, we can leave a different kind of mark on this year. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that pain is a thing to talk about and be experienced. And the, and the idea of isolation and being disconnected from those that we love and care about, that marks us. But I think what it can, what it has a space to do is we can say that this was the year that we decided we will never be distant again. Uh, that we we're going to lean into community, not lean away from it. That this year, if nothing else, has taught me that we need each other deeply, um, yeah. and that that need is something that we can continue to chase after. And so, yeah, I, I think I think the hope for me is that God is is going to do something um, memorable <laughs> in this year. And my prayer is that He can use us to again be that prophetic voice, right? Help people to see yeah. Him in the middle of all of this, uh, in the middle of all of this crazy, in the middle of all the confusion. He was still near and dear to His people. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was it was a fun thing to write. Yeah, yeah. How do how do you and I guess how do we hang on to our hope in the midst of this time? Uh, shameless plug: you can buy the book that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll link it out in the show notes so that people can grab a copy of that. Yeah, but I I think there's something to be said about creating too, though, um, because I I feel like I can only have a real hope when I'm actually able to be real about the places where I'm hopeless. And mm. like the hope just seems so superficial if I'm not really w- willing to see how deep my hopelessness goes. And so mm-hmm. there's no betrayal of God in being honest about how hard things are. I think he actually invites that. Uh, he welcomes it. Cast your cares upon him. Uh, so I think the first thing I would say is be real about where your despair is. Um, don't hide from it. Um, hope's only going to go in the place where, you, where you've addressed your hopelessness. So be real about the place where you're broken. Uh, I think it's a starting point. And the second thing yeah. I think is, is, is again, leaning into what I think the black community has done for a long time is, is if you've seen, there's actually a song we have um, called, if you if I've seen you work in others, I believe you can work in me. That hope is, it, 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 it's connected to not things that God could do, but things that God has already done. And so yeah. having a familiarity with scripture, uh, having a, familiar, a familiarity with how God has moved in the lives of his people and trusting his character that he's not going to change. And so I think those stories of God's faithfulness are meant for moments like this when we feel like we're struggling. It's to remind us and to be an encouragement to us that he is faithful, that he is good, and he has a plan for our lives. And so I would say being honest about our despair, uh, being being familiar with God's character of faithfulness. And the last thing I would say is, is being intentional uh, to not do it by yourself. Um, hope is a thing that's contagious. 
And so the more you're around people who are rubbed up against hope, it rubs off on you. Um, I think that Jesus does a good job of balancing time alone and isolation and being in the wilderness, but then always coming back and doing life and connecting and doing community. And so uh, there's there's a way in which we're not desired, designed to be alone. Uh, and I think hope doesn't live in isolation. Um, so yeah, I would just encourage people, be honest about what you're wearing, be familiar with how God has been faithful before, and then uh, do life with people uh, that, that, that encourage and stir hope inside of you. Yeah, definitely. That Even just hearing that is super encouraging to me. So I appreciate those words. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up the podcast, we have one question that we ask everybody. But before we do that, is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't already talked about? Um, I would just say I'm thankful for what this experience has been, both with um, writing the book, but also being able to have conversations like this. Um, it's been super cool to see, like, not, not to be like, crass or anything, but there's a lot of white folks I've been talking to lately. Um, we're just so, just, just so for the idea of neighboring and bearing one another's burdens. And I know we have not figured it all out as a church, but I'm so thankful that the church is growing. Um, and the idea that the church has made mistakes before, it's not something we shy away from. Um, but we kind of look to and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of growing pains. And thankfully not saying it's, it's perfect, but thankfully I've been I've been stirred to hope lately and having these kind of conversations to see people who are willing to grow. And so I'm super thankful for you um, and for oh, you listeners, you. like for being about the conversation. Um, so, yeah, I'm super thankful. And I'm just praying that, you know, that hope comes from from this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I really liked what you said about um, that a lot of white people think their posture should be listening right now. Mm. Um, that really resonated or that really spoke to me because that's what I thought that my posture should be, but your words about it being a conversation and a give and take and okay. kind of letting all the struggle rest with the group of people who are already struggling. I was like, wow, I had not thought about that. What thought about it that way. Mm. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. That was super helpful to me. Awesome. So it also reminded me of poetry in general, because I don't know a ton about poetry, but I know that poetry has, there's a rhythm and a meter with built-in pauses. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so, yeah, so it kind of, I don't know, I could be way off base, so you can correct me on this, but it kind of reminded me, the natural flow of poetry reminded me of how we should flow and relate to each other mm. as we listen and do. Would you agree with that? Girl, preach that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I definitely do agree with that. I definitely yeah. Do yeah, like as it relates to listening and stuff like that, do you how do you feel like how listening and our rhythm kind of I think I think that we have um I think so no one no one pays me to come and listen. Like I'm, I'm I typically am encouraged to come and talk. Uh we have yeah. whole careers and industries about getting our our word out and we've learned to call us talking, communicating. Um what's interesting about that, and this is like a you know, Bible rant, but uh, that word for communicate is what we like. That's communion, right? Like how yeah. we commune with each other, and that I think is rooted in, even in our prayer lives, right? Like our communication with God is typically we say a bunch of stuff to Him and don't let Him get a word in. Uh, but communication is that communing. It's spending time allowing there to be that give and take. And I do think that we have to uh, recognize that. And this is like a cool thing about poetry, right? Poetry is not limited to a rhythm. It kind of it points out where rhythm already is. And so, oh. you know, like in, in your natural conversation, in your natural speech, you have a cadence when you talk, um, even if, if beyond like your, your, your tone of voice, someone could listen to you talking, 
um, and just know it's you by your cadence, just how you naturally talk to people. And so yeah. with poetry, it's just being intentional with that cadence and being intentional with that meter. Um, I think there is a natural way in which we have a cadence with God and with each other that needs work <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to learn to listen more, but also not like even, even like if you go to a church service, right, you're you're going to see people singing from the stage and then someone's going to talk to you for 30 minutes and there's no kind of give and take. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's not really a space for discipleship. Discipleship happens when we're communing, when we're doing life together, when we're sharing a meal, when we're having conversation across the table. And so, yeah, I would just encourage anybody, like, don't don't say things like, I don't have a culture or I don't have a cadence. Like, you have a culture, you know, <laughs> you, you have a yeah. cadence. Um, but learning how, how does our culture blend together with other cultures and how do we intentionally do life beyond homogeny and do life to where uh, I, I have give, I have something to offer, but I also have much to learn and much to receive. When we find mm-hmm. that, I'm going to go as far as saying something cheesy right here. I think it's like poetry emotion. <laughs> we can learn to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I lied, obviously. I said I had one more question before the last <laughs> one, and then I threw another one in there. Good, so. <laughs> yeah. So now for the last question, because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one uh, one practice, spiritual or otherwise, that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Uh, journaling. Easy. Um, I, I wrote this whole thing out of a place of just spending time with God. We actually had just moved to this new church and we were doing this midweek prayer because we couldn't have like in-person worship. And so our, our folks were hoping to have more content. We said, we're thinking, oh, we'll do this for like a couple of weeks and then we'll be back in person. And then we mm-hmm. we just never went back in person. That's what we all said. <laughs> I know, I know. And so I, I made it a point to every time we went into our worship space to just journal. Um, I like to sing, I like music and everything, but I really feel like my worship is um, being able to flesh out all this stuff. And sometimes my journaling is just a journal entry. A lot of times it's poetry, but sometimes it's not. It's just writing out random things, uh, questions, frustrations, um, praise, excitements. And so journaling has been a huge thing for me. I feel like I've been, um, I've been learning to rest well, uh, and then point out places where I'm still restless just by putting it on paper. Um, I think God's been meeting me in that. Uh, I was talking to a friend, um, who is saying, Hey, once you, you know, write a book, start thinking about your next book. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be thinking about another book. But then I kept journaling. <laughs> I'm already thinking about another book. So. Oh uh, yeah. So are you, you're working on one right now? I actually am, which is really yeah. ridiculous. Um, all this is going to stop once I have my second kid. Cause I won't be sleeping and nobody, wants, <laughs> nobody wants to read that. Um, but yeah, we're um, just, just trying to find consistent ways to meet with them. Journaling has been a huge help. Yeah. For sure. Well, Lo, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and your words and your work. Um, this conversation has been a gift to me and to all of us, and I really appreciate you. Oh, thanks, friend. Super thankful for you. And just, again, appreciate you and all my other friends uh, who are leading into the conversation during this time. I think God's going to do some really good things in it. And that is how I hope this year is remembered. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. So thank you, friend. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Lo. His words are truly a gift to each of us as they invite us into another's experience with empathy and call us to lament with hope. If you'd like, you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook at Lo the Poet and tell him thanks so much for being part of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. And of course, be sure to grab a copy of his new book that released December the 3rd, We Sang a Dirge. We'll link that out in the show notes so you can easily find and order a copy for yourself today. 
As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, go do something that helps you thrive.